Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, we're moving through this wonderful study of God's Word in the book of Samuel. 1 Samuel will finish um, hopefully by the end of the summer in this book and then jump into 2 Samuel come the fall. So with that being said, kids, if you're here, children, church available towards you, nursery through 5th grade, 8th grade. Uh, available for you at this time. You can go while the rest of us continue this, this story, this magnificent, magnificent narrative. It's just a, a lot of drama, danger, suspense, surprises. Uh, it, it's not just a good, well-written, enjoyable story. There's truth to be seen and applied to our lives today. David is a man who's been appointed. He's been anointed as the king of Israel, the next king of Israel. A great responsibility for anyone, right? I mean, he's got to learn. David has learned, as we have to learn as well, when we take responsibilities on ourselves, wherever you may be, in your job, your home, uh, your school, wherever you are, that our responsibilities must be anchored in the Lord and anchored in God's word. And David is in the wilderness, and he's learning this so that when he does become king, he could follow the Lord. And the human heart is no different than it is today. The human heart is prone to do things their own way, their own strength, their own wisdom. Uh, it's what happens with David, we'll see it in the story. It happens with us each and every day. Solomon, the great wisdom writer, said, nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Our hearts are, 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 are like to prone, they wander away from God. And here in our narrative, what we'll see this morning is David's going to learn a lesson. We're, if you remember, we're in that period between Saul is the king of Israel, God has rejected him, but he's still king, and David is going to be king shortly. And we're in that intermediary uh, time between Saul's kingdom and now David to be king. Last week, as we've been seeing over and over again, the king Saul is in hot pursuit to kill David, Right? He's in hot pursuit. We've seen his paranoia. We've seen his violent anger toward not only David, but toward his son. He tried to kill his own son. If you remember in chapter 22, Saul orders the murder of 85 priests of God and their families. He's on a rampage in chapter 22. Saul is, is fighting the inevitable. Saul knows the kingdom of God will be taken from him, but he's fighting against the sovereign hand of God, and he will lose. It'll be futile and totally unsuccessful. At the end of chapter 23, last week, remember, David is in the wilderness. He's at a place called Maon. He's on one side of the mountain, and, 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 and David's on one side of the mountain with his, with his men. It's, it's only about 400, 600 men. And, and Saul's on the other side of the mountain. And as they're ready to collide, as, as Saul is ready to capture David and kill him is what he wants to do, a word comes to the king. Chapter 23, verse 27, that the Philistines, the enemies of God, have now raided the land, and King Saul is needed. He must stop his pursuit against David, because he is needed to help fight against the Philistines. That's how we ended chapter 23. And now in chapter 24, we're back where we were. Saul is pursuing David. King Saul, the king that is, that is, he is now king, is pursuing the soon-to-be king, David. Verse 20, chapter 23, the end, we find David. Look at, look at with me, chapter 23. Look at verse 24. David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon. That's where the mountain was. And then if you look at the end of chapter 23, David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So David went from Maon to En Gedi. And 
Saul, as we know, attacked the Philistines. Chapter 23 in the end, uh, verse 20. It's hard for me to see these days. 28. And opens up, if you, could, if you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 24. It opens up with Saul returning from battling the Philistines. So in other words, David is, is, is running away. Saul leaves and goes and fights the Philistines. And we don't hear anything about the battle. If you notice that, chapter 23 closes, chapter 24 opens, and, and Saul is back. We don't know anything about the battle. We don't know if he won, lost, casualties, nothing, because the narrator is not interested in that. What the narrator wants us to see is the urgency and the insistency of Saul's murderous anger toward David. That's what this story is about. Saul is in hot pursuit and wants David dead. 1 Samuel 24. So this is what we're going to do. Three simple ways to follow this story. The first is, verses 1 through 7, that Saul is going to be spared. David will spare Saul's life. Verses 1 through 7. Secondly, we're going to see David submits. He does a remarkable submission and humility and pays homage to the one who's trying to kill him. That would be Saul. And finally, we'll end with God speaking. And and 18 and following through the verse. So that's where we're going this morning. So number one, Saul spared. Chapter 24, hear the infallible, authoritative, inerrant word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, okay, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. He went from Maon to En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfold, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. (laughs) Now David... And his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you, David. And David arose and stealthily, cool word, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word. So the scene, let me me throw this map up. The scene, he, he goes from Maon. I don't, again, I don't have my remote. Uh, you can see right by Carmel, Maon. And he goes to En Gedi. En Gedi is toward the Dead Sea. If you look up above Hebron, you see the forest of Hereth. Adullam, remember that was the cave where he was. Uh, Keila last week. So that's kind of all the vicinity. Gath, you see Gath over to the left. That's where, who's from Gath? Goliath. So it's in the Philistine area. So now he's going from 
Maon uh, to En Gedi by the Dead Sea. Now, May, uh, the the, the Gedi was a was a, a, an oasis. There was running water there. It was a really good place to hide out. It was a safe place to go, but it was also a place where um, you could stay for a while and, and and drink water and get food and and kind of that's where that's where David is. David's in that in that place in that location in the western side of the Dead Sea. And, and if you don't love the honest straightforwardness of Scripture, you'll hopefully you'll love it today. Because whether you're a, a superhero or a supervillain, you have to take a break and relieve yourself. I know you don't see that in the movies. You don't see that. You don't know when, like, you know, Spider-Man doesn't go, hold on a minute, let me stop. But that does happen. Saul needs to stop. Now, this is not the first time that Saul had to relieve himself. And that's what it means. Right? It's not the first time, right? He's, he's probably in his 60s, maybe. But who knows how old he is. He's relieved himself before. But only here in Scripture do we see that it's said and written and recorded, Saul went in to use the bathroom in the cave. And, he, and we have that in the Scripture for a purpose. 3,000 men, chosen men of Saul, they were the Navy SEALs. They, they were the ones that he chose. They were the best of the best. Against David, 600 men, 3,605 to one odds. And by the providence of God, Saul walks right into the cave, a trap, and all his men are outside going, you go ahead. We'll wait out here. You go in by yourself. That's the mystery. That is the mysterious work of the providence of God, the working of his sovereign will, even in the mundane things of life. Saul, we know, probably went in by himself, maybe probably took his robe off and put it down next to him. And at first, I'm sure the army, think about it, you're in the cave, and you know 3,000 fighting men of the best of the best are outside the cave, and Saul's looking for you, and there he is in the front of the cave. You had to be frightened. But then as it unfolded, I don't know this to sure, but they might have been trying not to laugh really loud. And what followed in this tense moment was a relief for both Saul and David. Some of you got it. Okay, I told him the second service will get it. <laughs> Was a relief to both Saul and David's men. Okay. Now, William Thomas wrote a book called The Land and the Book. He writes about uh, different culture differences of, uh, in, in the days of, 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 of the Bible. And he writes this. This is interesting. He says this. He says, these caverns or caves are as dark as midnight, and the keenest eye cannot see five paces inward, but one who has been long within and is looking outward toward the entrance, can observe with perfect distinctiveness distinctness all that takes place in that direction. David, therefore, could watch Saul as he came in and notice the exact place where he covered his feet. That's a Jewish idiom for relieving himself. While he, Saul, could see nothing but impenetrable darkness. End quote. So you see the scene, right? Saul's Navy SEALs are outside the cave. It's armed and dangerous, and they're not coming in. David and what the Bible tells us in chapter 22 is misfits, right? The ones who are distressed, in debt, discontented, are inside the cave, hidden. And a short distance from there, there is Saul, his pants down, relaxing, 
doing his business. Uh, if you didn't eat breakfast, I'm sorry. If you're eating now, again, I'm sorry. But. And David's men break out into that old song we love to sing. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made, the Lord hath made. We will rejoice. We will. Well, verse 4 basically says that, right? Here's the day in which the Lord made. Behold, this is the men talking to David. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. This is what the Lord said, David. Unfortunately, the Lord never said that to David. The Lord did tell David that his enemies, he will, he will crush, he will defeat his enemies, but these men are taking it like, we're not just talking about the Philistines, David, Saul's your enemy, and now he, he's your enemy, you must be his enemy, and now the Lord has brought him to us. I mean, they see this application in God's providence. It, it's happening, and they, they're, understood, they're, they're understanding like, he's right here. Go get him. And David seizes the opportunity, sneaks up on the king. He could have cut his throat, but he doesn't. He had either a sharp knife or a sharp sword that he was able to cut the corner of his royal robe without Saul knowing it. Now, there's a debate on what that actually means. What is the significance of David cutting the robe of the king? Some people think it has an, a whole lot of implication other than the fact that it's, 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 he's the king and um, you shouldn't do those kind of things to the king. Others, and I, I agree with these people, they, they, they say, and I, I, again, I would agree, that it signifies the forfeiting of the kingdom when, when the robe is cut. And, and David's act, I believe, was symbolic of, of, of the, the coming kingdom to David. It was sort of like, look, the kingdom's going to be mine. It was kind of a, a revolt against the, the king. And David cuts his robe. I say that partly because in 1 Samuel 15, when the prophet Samuel turned to Saul, King Saul, when God already declared, you're not going to keep this kingdom, he seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. The robe was torn. And Samuel turned to King Saul and said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. See the symbolic nature of that. You remember Jonathan, Saul's son, took off his robe and, and laid it at the feet of David, symbolizing he was giving up his right to royal succession. My father's a king. I will be king. I won't be the king. I'll give it to you, David. That's what he's saying. And then David is staking his claim to the kingdom that day in that cave. I think that's why, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, and after David's heart, it struck him. So after he cut the robe, he had this hearkening of this, this, his heart was struck. And it says, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. New American Standard, his conscience bothered him. The NIV, David was conscience stricken. See what he's saying? He was deeply troubled and moved in his conscience for what he did. And here I think is the point. This was the day that David had the opportunity. David had the opportunity. It was made easy for him to take the path to the kingdom, to the throne, in one split second. Quick and easy. But it was a test. 
David was in the wilderness learning character. David was in the wilderness learning to trust in the Lord. Learning what it means to depend on God. Learning. He's in the place where things that we have all our hope in collapses. Our pseudo-salvation, I mentioned last week, the thing that drives our heart comes crashing down and the only one left is the treasure of Christ, is the full satisfaction in who God is and what God has done. David's learning that here in this passage. Will David learn to wait on the Lord? Will David learn that becoming king is not most important, but ultimately his, his treasure should be in the Lord? David understood that the kingdom will be his. But David had to un- understand that the kingdom will be either taken by force, or he'll wait on the Lord. He will do it in his own strength, in his own wisdom, and do what he wants to do, or wait on the Lord. So he turns to the men. I mean, you can see the scene. He sneaks up. The men say, this is the day. This is the day. Go get him. David takes the sword. He walks up. He cuts the robe. And the men got to be thinking, really? You missed the opportunity. You should have cut his throat. Saul's going to kill us too. We'd love, all of us should take him out. In verse 6, look what he says. He turns to the men and he says, the Lord forbid it. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my king or to my Lord. The Lord's anointed. See what he called Saul? And then he goes on and says it again. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. He says it twice. The kingdom at this moment still belonged to Saul. That's the point. David understood that he was submitting to the authority of God because he's submitting to, as he submits to the Lord's anointed. And look what he says. It's not so much taking the king out. He's more concerned about obeying God. He's more concerned about rebelling against the king of kings than just the king. Now think about this, family. Think about it even from a political standpoint or a work standpoint or wherever you, you, know, wherever you may be, the application here. I mean, how many people would take what they believe is rightfully theirs if they were given an opportunity. Maybe there's someone that got the job that you should have got. Maybe there's someone that, that actually did not earn it but was given them a job, and then you have an opportunity. Huh, falls in your lap to speak evil against that person. Do you take it? Do you tear them down? Mom and dad, you got that snot-nosed kid. Not yours, of course. Nobody in this room. And the parents, because of influence, your kid gets put to the side. But then an opportunity arises. Do you take it? Does the end justify the means or does the means justify the ends? In other words, the kingdom will come. It will be David's. God declared it. Doesn't matter how I get it. Doesn't matter. That was a real dilemma. The men saw this as the providence of God to take out the king, yet David, in this temptation, will not go ahead of God. For David, it was not so much that, for David, it was not so much that the kingdom was coming. What it was was how would it come? And the question remains, will I take matters into my own hands? Will I, now this, don't, don't raise your hands, will I look at my desires 
whether it's to be king or whatever it is in your desires, and my circumstances, and declare my desires and my circumstances that now I know the will of God. Okay? In other words, I am so unhappy in my marriage, God must have brought that person to cheer me up, and now I must let... That's not God's will. Or, or this one. I know I shouldn't be dating this person. He's not a believer in Christ. And, and you know what? But I was singing this worship song when we met. It must be the will of God. It's not the will of God. And people look at circumstances, look at desires, and immediately claim this must be the word of God and the will of God. But listen, desires and circumstances not the final say of the word of the will of God. The word of God is. And that we, we mentioned this last week. How to discern the will of God. We stay in the word of God. We, we look through the scriptures to apply biblical truth to the particulars of the life situation. I mentioned uh, Romans 12. Let me do it again. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's through the word of God. That then you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. God may not give us a clear word but he'll give us principles to follow. And the Spirit of God will shape our minds, shape our hearts, shape our wills through the Word, through prayer, through community, not always through circumstances and desires. We have to be very, very, very careful. Our hearts are very deceptive. And we like to read circumstances. And we need to be, it's not that it's always wrong, but we need to be very, very, very careful. David was sure the kingdom could come, would come. But it would have to be the gift of God. It would not be something he would take himself. God's perfect plan will be accomplished on God's terms, right? The end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. David's learning. But not his men. (laughs) They still haven't gotten it yet. Look at verse 7. David persuaded his men with these words. He's the Lord's anointed. I'm not doing this. David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. You're not going to do it. And Saul rose up and left the cave. Now, the word persuaded in the ESV is a bad translation. The NIV has sharply rebuked. It literally means David tore apart his men. So it wasn't like, all right, guys, listen, let's, get, let's huddle together. Let's talk about this. David tore apart his men with these words. Some commentators think it might even got physical. But David was not going to lay down. David made sure that his 300, uh, 600 men were not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And that's, sometimes, some, listen, sometimes, sometimes we need to learn a situation. Sometimes, even when there's the providence of God, even when we think the Lord is working, we cannot just say, look, here's an occasion Do it yourself, right? What seems good to you, do it. Don't worry about the consequences. Don't worry about the morals. Kill your conscience, just do it. But you know what? It may not be, if it's a violation of God's word, the will of God. So we have to be very careful. Saul is spared. David, the next king, has an opportunity. He doesn't take it. Now look look at verse 8 with me. After David arose, so he, 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 he... Cuts off the robe. He feels guilty. He doesn't kill him. He goes back to his men. You were not doing this. David arose and went out from the cave and called after Saul, my lord the king. 
And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Amazing. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. It's the providence of God. You're in my hand. And some told me to kill you. But I spared you. I will not put my hand against the Lord. My Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11. See, my father, the corner of your robe is in my hand. For the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe, not your throat, and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. This providence, I am an innocent man. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. I'll leave it to the judgment of God. The proverb of the ancients, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 14, after whom has the Lord of Israel, the King of Israel, excuse me, come out? Who do you come out? Who do you pursue? A dead dog? Like, really? You're chasing after me after a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David is acknowledging God's sovereignty. David is acknowledging he's submitting to the Lord and therefore he is submitting to the fact that God Almighty has placed King Saul as the king of Israel. Even though, even though we know from the past that Israel wanted their king and didn't want the man that that God wanted for them, still ultimately... He is the Lord's anointed. And David (laughs) refuses to take revenge for the suffering and the hatred and the murderous attempts that Saul has tried to do. And he remains, David remains in the steadfast will of God. It's amazing. He's respecting the office of the king. When we take things into our own hands, we sang a minute ago, we're walking by sight, not by faith. When we walk by sight, we want things our own way and our own strength. When we walk by faith, we walk in God's strength and God's wisdom. And when we want to do things ourselves and we sense and we know that you are going ahead of God, I think what we're saying is, you can't handle this, Lord. You're you're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're too slow. I'm not waiting on you. David, the man of faith, is saying to God, he's yours. This is your timing. I'm not going to do things. And the first thing we see David do is bow down before him. I mean, can you imagine the look on Saul's face? He comes out of the cave. Out comes, out comes David. And there's David bowing his face. And, and David says to him, why are you listening to the wrong people? Why are you listening to people that are telling you lies? Have you ever listened to the wrong person? Mm, yes. He calls him father. Lots of respect. And he's like, listen, I could have killed you. If you don't believe the story, look what I have in my hand. That's a piece of your robe. See, there's a piece missing. You didn't, you, you didn't catch that in a dark cave. I have it in my hand. I spared your life. I did not commit treason. I did not take your life while you were sitting there quietly reading your newspaper. I could have. And David says, vengeance is the Lord. Verse 12. Let the Lord judge. Let the Lord avenge. My hand's not going to be against you. Just as, as the proverb has said, out of the wicked comes wickedness. My hand shall not be against you. And David is vindicating himself. 
He's not tried to kill Saul, even though Saul's been trying to kill David. He knows that the final judge, the vengeance will come, and he leaves the retribution to God. That's what he does, right? He bows in submission, respect. He shows mercy. He shows integrity. He doesn't want revenge. Revenge is that way in which we want to harm one another, right? We want to level the playing field. We want to, we, we want to even the score ourselves. That's vengeance. Someone hurts you, you hurt them. You're upset the way someone treats you, you treat them even worse. That's vengeance. Romans 12 says that we should never avenge ourselves, that we should pay back good when those who do evil against us. Verse 19 says of Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Leave it to God. Leave, leave it to the wrath of God. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, there has to be a room in your theology that God will make everything right. That includes wrath. That includes punishment. God will not let evil, unrighteousness, or sin go unpunished. Every one of us stand under the wrath and judgment of God. It is Jesus Christ who dies in our place. It is Jesus Christ who takes God's wrath, who takes our judgment in our place. But there's another principle here. And this may not sit well with some of you. You ready? How do we speak about those or speak to those who are authoritative over us, who have authority over us? Let's start with politicians, elected officials, congressmen, senators, governors, past presidents, present president, future presidents. Is there anyone worse than King Saul? No. What does the New Testament tell us? I'll tell you what it says. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Doesn't mean you have to agree with everything everyone says. I don't. I'm sure you don't. To honor the president or anyone in authority over us, mayors or whoever it may be, means that we recognize, first and foremost, that God ultimately had placed them there. God ultimately has placed them there. If you don't believe me, believe Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. David's respect, honor of man's authority was based on his respect and honor of God's authority. No matter how much we agree, disagree, disapprove, those in authority have been placed over us by God. It is the providence of God to accomplish his own sovereign purposes. What did God say about Pharaoh? What Pharaoh did to the Israelites? What did God say about Pharaoh in the scriptures? Romans 9, about Pharaoh, he says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Saul, David is saying, is the Lord's anointed. Who is Saul in this office? He is the Lord's anointed. Whatever character he is, whatever he has done or has not done, he is recognizing that he is the Lord's anointed. We have to be careful. 
we have to be careful. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful, be respectful. Not in, a, not in a dishonoring and mocking way of those that God has placed over us. The New Testament tells us again in 1 Timothy that we are to pray. <laughs> and we are to pray and bless and pray for the leaders in authority over us. 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by God. To punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. To be subject to them. You, know, you may not be happy about the taxes you pay. You may not be happy about the government's rules and stuff. But we are commanded to, to, to pray and to be careful about disrespecting those over us. Now someone forbids us to proclaim the gospel. If someone is clearly violating scripture, what is our response? We obey God, not man. But don't run to that verse right away. A lot of stuff going on that we don't know. We should obey and submit to the laws unless it causes us to sin. Remember, Peter said, fear God, fear God, honor the emperor. So fear God is first. We, we submit and we fear and we love and we obey God without question. Because those over us, listen, by God's hand, subject to God's sovereign will. Again, honoring those over us does not mean we agree with everything he or she says or that we commend or condone it. We are to speak the truth in love, that we are to stand for righteousness. That's perfectly okay. And at times, we can work with legal means to oppose them, to, to change the policies if they're not right or not righteous or helpful. We could do that. We should express where we feel they are wrong. But, but we should do it respectfully without character assaulting them. Honor also doesn't mean when we honor those in authority that there are times that we have to go to a higher authority. When someone's abusing somebody, assaulting somebody, we don't say I'm going to honor them and they can do what they want. No, there are times, but that's different than vengeance. We have to report them for the love of our neighbor, to seek justice. It's a different story. Again, Romans 13, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is right. Do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. David is facing a wrongdoer. But David is showing respect. David is showing honor. What does the military say? Salute the rank, not necessarily the man. David closes a brilliant speech. Look at verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge. Give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David's like, I'm committing myself to the Lord. Vengeance will be his. I'm submitting to him, to God alone. And and he's really, I really believe David is, is at this place because he's trusting in the Lord. He's left, he has left retribution. He is leaving judgment up to God. Even the attacks against him. You say, well, where does he learn that? Where does David learn to trust in the Lord? Even in the midst of, of hatred and murderous uh, vengeance against him, he's going to leave it to the Lord. I'll tell you where. Look at, if you have a Bible, look at, I turned to Isaiah. I meant Psalms. Now, we've been talking about this because there's Psalms. David wrote Psalms. You know that. Not all of them, but he wrote a lot of them. And sometimes these Psalms are written in particular circumstances to teach us. David, while in the cave, 
probably before Saul showed up and relieved himself. But David in the cave wrote these words. Psalm 57. David, when he fled from Saul in the cave, he wrote this. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. In other words, I'm a sinner too. I need mercy. For in you, Lord, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I'm waiting on you. Have mercy on me. I'm taking refuge in you. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Your will, not mine. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, fiery beasts, fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and, and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. They are after me. They're pursuing me. Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be all over the earth. They set a snare for me. They dug a pit for me. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody to God. Listen, David is being squeezed in the wilderness, and he's trusting in God. And it shows itself in respect and honor of the king. So, Saul is spared. David submits ultimately to God. And then verse 16. Chapter 24, verse 16, hear the word of the Lord. As soon as David had finished, finished speaking, these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son? Is this this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good where I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me. And that you did not kill me. And when the Lord put me into your hands, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you, this is amazing, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, David. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Verse 22, and David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, and David went up into the strongholds. Now, you might be a little bit confused. See what I said? God speaks. Did God speak? Well, not personally, but God speaks in this passage. In fact, God, if God can speak through Balaam's donkey, if God can speak through this very flawed preacher, God can speak through an apostate king. Why? Because the word of God tells us, Isaiah speaks for God, the prophet of God says, my word, God speaking, my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty. It will accomplish that which I purposed and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word goes out. God speaks through his word. And now God is speaking through Saul. First Saul starts weeping, right? He starts crying. We're not sure. Why is he crying? Is he, is he, is he, is he got blood on his hands? Does he have a bad conscience all of a sudden? Did he realize how close to death he really came? We don't know. But one thing we do know about King Saul. King Saul is not crying because of genuine repentance. 
Saul is not repenting of his sins. You see, David was convicted when he cut the robe. And then we see David, what they call the fruit of repentance. We see, we see David now submitting to God. We, we see David honoring the king. We see this fruit of repentance in David, not Saul. Saul's going to speak the truth. Saul's going to bless uh, 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 David. Saul's going to give glory to God. But Saul's going to turn around in a couple of weeks, we're going to see, wants to still kill and murder God's anointed. No genuine repentance. Repentance is a change of heart. Repentance is a change of the will, a change of the mind. It's directional change marks repentance, all right? Directional change marks repentance. It's a turning from sin, turning to God. But Saul will, in remorse, what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. Man, I got caught. <laughs> Man, I feel shamed. Man, I, I, I can't look at you in the eye. I feel so bad. That's remorse. Repentance is a turning to God. Saul will say, David, you're righteous, I'm not. Saul will say, you know what, I was wicked toward you, David, and yet, David, you have repaid me for good. Saul even acknowledges the potty break was God's providence. Look at verse 18. In that day, you did not kill me when the Lord put, you, put me into your hands. When you caught me, I want to say with my pants down, not, not metaphorically, actually, you could have killed me. And then he invites, Saul invokes this blessing upon David. Bless you, bless you, reward you with good. Verse 20, the first time so clearly spoken in all of our lessons so far, Saul is like, you know what? You'll be next king. The kingdom of God will be taken from me. The kingdom of God will be given to you. There is certainty. God has rejected me as king. David, you will be king. Only, only one thing for me, David. Promise me. Swear to me. Swear to me that you won't kill, kill my descendants. And you know what's happening? Proverbs 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Saul has a momentary lapse back into sanity, but he only asks one thing. Don't kill my descendants. Remember what we said earlier. When a king took over a kingdom, he killed everyone in the family. He killed everyone, was killed because he didn't want anybody around to revolt against him. Everyone would die. And Saul's like, swear to me, David. And David, what does David do? David swears. It's amazing. It's amazing. Like, after all that David's been through because of Saul trying to kill him. And then Saul leaves. Look at it. goes back to Gibeah. And David, what does he do? Does he go back home? No. Because he knows it's not genuine repentance. He's back in the stronghold because that momentary lapse is going to change. He's going to want me dead again. And, and this, this kingdom transfer from Saul to David, we've been seeing week after week, will not be established quickly and will not be established without suffering. That is not the way God is working. Quick and easy without pain. That's how we want it, right, family? Let's, let's be honest. We want things quick and easy without pain, without suffering. If I could just get what I got to get. The ends justify the means. If I'm happy and get what I want, doesn't matter how I get it. Who cares? And David's men are in the cave and they're thinking, listen, we have this opportunity. This amazing opportunity. Uh, uh, Temptation was great, and David refused it. Notice, David's saying, you know what? The kingdom belongs to the Lord. Yes, he'll overthrow evil. Yes, he'll overthrow uh, injustice. Yes, he will punish, but it's not my timing. It's God's timing. David's temptation is real. David's test in the wilderness, in the cave, is real. 
Does it sound like somebody else had a temptation like that? There's someone else that was tempted. Think of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden was told by the enemy, take the shortcut. You can be like God. You can have access to eternal life, access to the knowledge of good and evil. Just eat of the fruit that is forbidden. And we see the same thing in this text, good and evil, righteous, unrighteous, that we see in Genesis, the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were being told by the enemy, listen, God is a killjoy. He doesn't want you to eat from that tree. He, he doesn't want you to know what he knows. He, he doesn't want what's best for you. Don't trust in his goodness. Take goodness. Take it yourself. Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was her desires. It was there. There was desires. There were circumstances. It was the delight to the eyes. Everything looked well. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit and she ate it. She turned around and gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They failed. They failed the temptation. And you know what? They already were like God. They were created in the Imago Dei. The difference is they understood evil and good. Don't eat. Do eat. You can go here. You can't go there. They understood evil. What they didn't do is experience it. And now they're experiencing evil. And you know what? When they sin and rebelled, they not only experienced it, they received the curse. Romans 5, all of us are under that same curse. God said, obey me, and you'll be blessed, rebel, and you will die. David here is the men, his own heart for a moment. Take what you want. Take what you got. Look at the providence of God. Don't trust and obey God. Take it. He's right in front of you. The Lord put him right in front of you. Go, David. And, 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 the, and as we see this text, and the Lord's servant there, and, and, and if we go back to that, to that place in the cave, will he take the throne? That's the temptation. Will he grab for glory his appointed time ahead of time? Will he use worldly means to gain and obtain something God has declared? David, unlike Adam and Eve, passed the test. Past the temptation. This one anyway. But there will come one who will pass every temptation and every test. He's the greater David. He is David's greater son. He is the Lord Jesus Christ who when tested and tempted lived it perfectly. David's greater son, Jesus Christ, faced the same temptation and test when in Matthew it says that during his 40 days in the wilderness, the devil took Jesus up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. All these things I offer to you. God already gave it to him. Read Psalm 2. Jesus, you, you could bypass the cross. You could bypass the suffering. Jesus, you could bypass the brutal execution. All this can be yours now. Get behind me. You see, Jesus, the greater Adam, Jesus, the greater David, is faithful always.
Because he trusted God. He believed that God not only ordains the end, he ordains the means to the end, and he goes the very hard and brutal way of the cross. First Peter. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But Jesus continued to entrust himself to the Father who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, let me wrap this up and say this to you. We'll close. This kind of test is not just confined to David. It comes to us. It's the temptation of the shortcuts. The problems, the difficulties, the hardship, the circumstance that we are passing through. We must see them and come to that place where David said, The Lord is my refuge. I will be under his wing. He will take care of me. He will be my refuge. God will be my refuge. And family, if Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, can trust his father in suffering, death, and resurrection. If he continue to entrust the one to whom judges justly, family, we can trust God this morning because we're in union with Christ. And because of the gospel, because that Jesus lived that perfect life, a life we could never live, he died an atoning death, dying in our place for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins, was buried in the grave, rose three days victorious over sin, death, and the grave. His resurrection is a declaration that sins are forgiven and that you can become a child of God. You will know because of the gospel that God is good, that God's providences are good. You go wait on the Lord. Don't take things and matters into your own hands. Trust the Lord this morning. Wherever you are, whatever is going on, Trust, turn to God. Trust in the Lord. Father, thank you for the lesson that you were teaching your servant, David. But Lord, thank you that the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life so that we can have life. His righteousness imputed to those who believe. Father, he won. He did not fail, but trusted you in every circumstances, test and trial. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you, because all we have is Christ. His perfect life, his death, his resurrection, that's all we have. Come, Lord, please, by your spirit, help us to worship you now in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name.